Here we go. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how you doing, man? Restless. Restless. Back from uh, back from a well-needed uh, couple of days, you know, over the Memorial Day break. Uh, feeling okay, feeling good. How about yourself? Good, man. It's good to see you. See and you. Uh, hope everybody had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, honoring uh, honoring everybody for us, the, all the sacrifices that people make. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to uh, to be a part of and and just uh, honor everybody. So. Hope everybody enjoyed that that weekend. But we do have uh, a wonderful guest on today. Uh, his name is Aaron Weller. He is the co-founder and president at Sentinel. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Well, for our listeners, we'll just go ahead and start things off with uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got to be the co-founder and president for Sentinel. Sure. So uh, I've uh, come through a fairly circuitous route to uh, to get to where I am today. And, uh, you know, I think as we talk through, it's uh, I, I've made decisions about kind of what I want to do and where I want to go. And, uh, you know, that they've landed me here. But uh, I would never have thought that I was going to be here kind of when I, when I started out. Um, I uh, grew up mostly in the UK and uh, ended up doing a, a degree in physics uh, was my undergrad. So uh, really trying to break down, you know, how do things work? Um, and uh, uh, unlike, uh, uh, well, like a lot of people in the UK, there aren't that many jobs in physics to go around. Um, so uh, I wasn't one of the uh, the really smart guys that got to go to CERN and kind of smash atoms together. So uh, uh, I ended up uh, like a lot of uh, a lot of my colleagues going into accountancy. Um, I started off my career at uh, Arthur Anderson uh, in the late nineties, uh, and that was back just before the uh, the Enron scandal. For those of you on, uh, old enough to uh, to remember that, so. I was kind of ground zero doing some work uh, actually on the Enron account. So uh, uh, very interesting to me to, to kind of be on the inside of a major global press cycle uh, where uh, you're saying, well, that's not quite how things are going on in, uh, you know, from our perspective as well. But uh, uh, got into uh, information security around that time, realized that being an accountant wasn't really for me, uh, but uh, I got into uh, information security, ended up running uh Teams of penetration testers. Uh, I did some fun stuff like uh, uh, the first internet bank in Eastern Europe. Uh, my team did the penetration test of that. So, you know, got to travel all around Europe, which was pretty cool. Um, ended up uh, after a few years uh, of living in London and never really seeing a blade of grass, uh, heading out to uh, uh, living in Australia for a few years. And I, I lived uh, two blocks from the beach in St Kilda, which is just south of Melbourne. Uh, so a very, very different experience, um, doing similar kinds of work. but uh, uh, And it was there. I'd always worked for big companies at that point, and uh, it was there I was given uh, the opportunity to uh, go and join what was really a, a, an Australian, um, I guess, uh, startup within a, a larger American firm. So we were starting up the practice in Australia. 
um, and uh, grew that uh, with the founding group to over 100 people in about 18 months, which was a pretty wild ride. Um, got bored with doing that or kind of looked for, uh, for other opportunities and ended up moving out to Silicon Valley. Uh, so Silicon Valley for a couple of years, um, ended up having kids, uh, moved up to Seattle for a little bit more of a balanced uh, balanced lifestyle, and I, I've been here ever since. But uh, uh, started another couple of startups along the way. So Sentinel now is my third startup uh, that, uh, you know, we, we founded about three years ago now, and, and it's really kind of continuing my philosophy of, uh, you know, always wanting to do things that I think are challenging and interesting. Uh, so Sentinel, uh, unlike my previous startup, which was uh, pretty information security focused, uh, we're very much uh, centered around privacy. Um, so looking at both um, from the consulting side of things, which has really been my background, you know, uh, big four consulting uh, most of my career, uh, but then we're also building a technology platform as well, because I think that with the level of complexity uh, around some of the privacy requirements these days, um, if you don't have some kind of automation, it's very, very hard to stay up. So uh, that's kind of what uh, what I'm up to now. And it's fascinating. Securitas is certainly a very, very interesting way to describe it. <clears throat> I think a lot of folks get asked that kind of one pivotal question, like, you know, what what kind of led you to the industry in general? Um, but instead of making, instead of asking that that question broadly, what I'm curious about is what what keeps you coming back to it today? What is it about the security and privacy space? Well, what is it about what Sentinel does that keeps you so excited about the journey you're on right now? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think um, for me, it's really been about you know I, I'm not a I'm not a surgeon. You know, I, I don't save lives, but at the same time, I like to think that some of the stuff we do does help influence. Um, companies to be doing things better and really take account of how, um, you know, how people think about um, the data that they're using. Uh, one of the things that I like to say is really privacy comes down to being people, right? You've got lots of ones and zeros in a database, uh, but fundamentally, if those ones and zeros are about people, they're going to have opinions, they're going to have preferences, they're going to have things that they want you to do and not do with the data. And I think it's very um, organizations, uh, it's easy for them to see that as being, you know, it looks like uh, a lot of uh, potential monetization opportunities. Uh, and while I think that that really does help drive a lot of innovation, uh, I like kind of being in the middle of those conversations and say, especially as we're trying to do things new, right? Um, there's a lot of things we do um, now that we weren't doing a few years ago with data. We've, we've got so many more sensors out in the world. You know, you've probably got smart devices in your house. Uh, you know, that your car is more computer than, uh, than vehicle at this point. Uh, but I think being in some of those conversations where even a group of professionals will get together and we, we disagree on some of the answers uh, and the opinions. Uh, it's very contextual. And I like that because the more people you talk to, um, especially people with diverse backgrounds, you, you get a lot of different opinions where, you know, what the right balance is. Um, and for me, kind of uh, being in those conversations, especially with a lot of the companies I work at are uh, very global in nature. Uh, so you get to see this very broad range of things that I think working for uh, one organization, which I've done at a couple of points in my career, I've always kind of come back to how do I, you know, get this breadth of experience and just these different perspectives uh, that I think really helps me to have a good, um, I would say, kind of a measured point of view somewhere in the middle between, uh, you know, a lot of those extremes that are out there. That, that's fascinating. That's awesome. I spent a, a healthy amount of time talking to uh, a lot of folks with a lot of problems also, similar to yourself. Is are are there trends in some of the challenges that your your customers are seeing 
What, what, what are some of the commonalities there? What's, what really perplexes them? I, I think a couple of the trends are that um, the, uh, the regulatory landscape, kind of the legal landscape, has changed a lot in the last couple of years uh, on a worldwide basis uh, for privacy. So we, we had uh, you know, GDPR was passed back in 2016, came into effect in 2018 over in Europe. Uh, but there's this kind of extra, tex- extra territoriality, uh, hard word to say, that uh, it means that anyone that's doing data with uh, information about European residents kind of gets caught up in that. Uh, and there's been a lot of changes um, on the US side of things as well the last couple of years uh, in California and a lot of other states are looking at uh, legislation around strengthening privacy rights. It means that companies have a lot of, particularly if you're running global programs, you've then got a lot of these different things. You've kind of got to manage these moving parts. But then you've also got the internal side as well, right? A lot of my clients are, are looking at um, new product, new ways of using data, um, you know, whether it's something that says, you know, I do you tend to get more responses to emails you send in the morning versus the afternoon? So you can kind of adjust kind of how your day goes um, to things where we're looking at, you know, how do I manage fleets of vehicles? How do I uh, keep vegetation off of power lines using drones, right? There's a lot of use cases that uh, that my clients kind of say, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing this. Uh, you know, where, does, where do you think that fits in? You know, what are the rules and the things we can and can't do? Um, so I, I think that's where it's, there's a lot of external change happening, uh, but even if there wasn't, uh, there's still a lot of companies are trying to innovate and do new things as well. And I think that for me is the particularly exciting piece where we're looking at, um, you know, how do you balance all of these different drivers uh, so you can end up with doing something that, uh, you know, is going to, at the end of the day, m- make some money, protect individuals' rights, uh, kind of get a good balance between all of these different um, uh, things pulling in different directions. I'm curious, uh, we've talked about uh, Sentinel, but can you explain to the listeners uh, this design and implementation of Ethos technology platform? Sure. Um, so one of the, the the reason we built a technology platform was, uh, as I said earlier, it's kind of that there are some things that I think um, are best done when you've got uh, uh, some horsepower, some technology horsepower mm-hmm. behind you. Um, and I got frustrated when I was working for uh, for some other consulting firms where we were doing a lot of stuff still in spreadsheets. And I was like, you know, there's got to be a, a, a better way of doing things. And what I realized was that um, because privacy is so complex, different laws uh, apply to different companies in, in different ways, e- even if they're in a similar business. Um, and a lot of these things, it, it comes down to either the way you're using information. So there's a law in the US called can spam that applies to if you're sending email messages, so you're probably mostly familiar with that. Um, and then there are also laws that apply to like children's data. So a type of data, you know, a type of use case, uh, or even a certain geography, like I mentioned with GDPR. Um, And what Ethos really does is to say, look, we can build a conceptual model of what an organization looks like uh, from a data usage perspective. Uh, And that's generally fairly easy to get pretty close because companies have to include those things in their their privacy notice on their website. Like this is the kinds of data we have. This is what we do with it. Uh, these These are the countries that we operate in. Um, so what Ethos does is it uses that to build a uh, a multi-dimensional filter uh, out of a big catalog of content. And what my team has done is really taken a lot of these requirements and said, we can look for the similarities, we can find the differences, add a lot of metadata. Uh, and going through that process, we can get to a, a reasonable approximation of the stuff that you need to care about and throw away or kind of you know, de-emphasize the stuff that uh, that you don't. Um, of course, we're not a law firm. I'm not a lawyer. Um, so there, there will be kind of that legal review component involved. 
but if we can get through 80% of kind of that grind uh, of having to go and read the laws line by line, compare it against existing things, um, what Ethos can do is really to uh, provide you with, you know, pretty much at the click of a button, uh, a new law comes out, how's it going to affect me specifically? Um, and we see that as being very complementary to a lot of the other solutions that are out there, right? We don't do a lot of the things like um, data mapping, consent management, a lot of the uh, kind of more operational privacy tasks. We see what we do as being kind of more of that strategic, here's what you need to do. Um, and then working with other companies to say, okay, let's, let's go and get this done in a way that works for uh, whatever the client wants to do. You know, looking at your past, it seems that you've been a privacy leader for quite some time. I would say at least a decade now, right? Mm-hmm. That's Yeah, that's about right. Things are so different now. Privacy is, you know, not, it's it's coming up. It's it's getting more and more important. What? How different were things back then uh, compared to what you're doing now? Obviously, you have a company based around privacy. So, yeah, yeah I mean, explain that. I, I'm, I'm so, super curious. It's very different. I mean, I, I was, um, as I mentioned, I started off my career uh, really in information security for a long time. I, I was the CISO or interim CISO for a couple of companies in the Bay Area. Um, and I got into privacy then because to me it was, it was really about the use of the data, um, and I found that fascinating that you're really getting into not so much the protection itself, uh, right? We have a database of uh, credit card numbers or whatever it is. You know, We need to follow the PCI requirements, but it was then people were arguing about, well, if we have this data and we collected it, what can we use it for? Like, How can we do things with it? You know, What are those rules? So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I got in with the very first wave um, of privacy professionals, but I, I got my CIPP back in 2007. Uh, so it has been over a decade now. Uh, but uh, that was really what triggered it for me was the it was still very early from a, the maturity of the profession. We don't have anywhere near the almost the, the separate job roles we have now. And I see this as almost being very similar to the development of the security profession where Back when I was doing penetration testing, we had very few of the tools you have now. A lot of it was hand scripted and kind of, you know, you, you would go through and create all this stuff as you went through every engagement. No Metasploit, none of the uh, the tools that are available today. Um, and privacy was very much like that, where there was some guidance out there, but we didn't have some of these big um, laws with the, the multi-million, even multi-billion dollar fining power. Um, it was still pretty early days from working out. Um, I think regulators were still trying to catch up with the pace of change, kind of following the uh, um, the rise of kind of the dot-com era. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was why I got in early. But it, it was really hard because um, as I was trying to focus on privacy, I kept getting pulled back into security because that's where the money is, right? That, that's where we have a team of 10 people, not you know half of a person who's trying to run around and do all of the things. Um, I think now we're seeing a lot of my clients the security teams are still bigger, but privacy teams are growing at a pace. Uh, it's really turned more into an actual profession rather than being something that was more of a, a I wouldn't say hobby because people were, you know, they really were um, working at this in some organizations. Uh, but when I think back, it, it's a, it's really, really grown in the last few years. Very, very different from that people would actually be doing these things at university now, right? There are university classes around, you know, not just privacy law, but privacy engineering. Uh, none of that stuff existed really when I got into the space. Yeah. And I'm sure, I know Gabe has been to many, many conferences, um, and I'm sure you have as well. And I think that the conversations have, sh- have shifted. 
it's kind of hard to say now from the last year and a half because of the pandemic and not really being able to go to to conferences. But what are you most looking forward to when that actually starts to to come back to fruition around uh, that conversation with just our peers and, and privacy industry and and yeah, I, I think there is a good sense of community. I mean, there is in the security space, but privacy, because it's smaller, I think maybe even a greater sense of community. Um, yeah. And with a lot of these questions, as I was saying, it's uh, it's great to talk to people who have different opinions and have solved similar problems in different ways. Uh, and even uh, kind of that little bit of, oh, you haven't solved this problem either, which we, you know, that there's a couple of things out there where working with a lot of big companies and all of them are struggling with some of the same problems because, we have so much data in so many places that even, um, you know, understanding where all of that data is and what we should do about that knowledge, um, it, it's really, really challenging. You know, I, I've got clients with thousands and thousands of individual systems uh, and applications they work with. You know, it's just that keeping up with all of that stuff is, is a real challenge. So, yeah, I, I do look for that sense of community. And I, I think that just getting those different perspectives, even sometimes that someone, you know, will be presenting on a topic and I'm like, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty across what you're talking about. That's kind of good reassurance as well. It's true. Now, I know you've talked about the passion behind the company and why you've created it around needing something that was automated. Um, do you have anything in your personal life uh, that has kind of put that passion behind uh, you to to want to proceed in this industry and, and you know anything personal that happened to you around privacy or anything like that? I've been pretty lucky when it comes to um, I haven't really experienced you know identity theft or some of those those real privacy issues, but uh, it's some of the things that I've seen where um, even people um, uh, the complaints uh, that some of my clients get where you're looking at them and saying, you know, this really did impact your privacy. And I can kind of see how, you know, maybe it was unintentional, maybe it was, and often it is unintentional. Uh, that's often one of the big differences between, you know, a privacy instant as opposed to, you know, like the, the threat actors we have in security. A lot of privacy incidents are caused by someone not following a policy or making a mistake or, um, but people uh, are really impacted, um, even when it's, um, I remember one where someone was in the witness protection program and for some reason their real address rather than, or their real name rather than their, you know, that their cover name had showed up in some report. And it's those kind of things you're like, wow, you know, that really is an edge case, but that could be a lot more impactful than, you know, I, I had someone try and open an account in my name. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know that there's anything. For me, it was more about that, the human element, I think, and trying to understand how if we have all of this information about people, we have a responsibility, I think, to, to really, you know, protect and look after it, which is kind of, I think that's come through from my, my security background as well. But this provides even more ways that that can go wrong and even more things that we can do to be like, okay, let, let's try and, as I said earlier, kind of balance uh, balance the books on it. Yeah. I think it's really key, like you, you touched on a little bit ago about diverse backgrounds that we come across in the privacy and security industry. And it's really neat to... Uh, to, to see everybody's different uh, thoughts around things. And um, I think it just, it makes it better for solving problems. And it's just really unique to hear everybody's story and, and their different backgrounds because everybody comes from so many different places, but ends up in this, uh, in this awesome community that we have. Um, Gabe, I'm taking the mic, man. Do you, uh, usually it's the other way around. You got, you got anything on your end? Um, before I ask, ask that uh, $100 budget question? <laughs> uh, 
you know what? That's a good way to go with this next. I've got probably nine or so really, anytime I'm in front of someone who spends as much time speaking to, to, to that many people with, with uh, you know, these challenges, I, I, I kind of just want to latch on to you and just ask you a billion questions. But, um, but the hundred dollar question I think is a very insightful one because it will even answer some of mine. So well, 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 since you've already teed it up, I'll ask the question outright, Aaron. Mm-hmm. If, if all you had walking into a new organization was $100 in your budget to begin addressing their privacy challenges, mm-hmm. you spend <clears throat> money. It's the way that I look at this is that the things that are going to bite you, you, you need to kind of, you need to be in a position where you're not going to get hit with something out of left field on your first couple of days, right? So for me, it's more important to, be thinking about that long-term piece because obviously if, if I did have a $100 budget, there's got to be you know a reason why that is. Understanding all of that is going to take time. But where I would start off kind of to try and make sure that I'm I'm at least from an external perspective, um, I've got those, um, the T's crossed and the I's dotted, would be to go and look at the uh, the privacy notice uh, on the on the main website and say, you know, when was it last updated? Are there significant things, there are significant things missing in here? Uh, get access to whatever email address is in there that's kind of where the complaints are coming in, you know, spend a bit of time looking to see, you know, have we ever had anything? Does that email even work? You know, it's it's some of those things where uh, those don't fix the underlying issues, but they may give you a little bit of time to really get your arms around it and do a better job of, of convincing executives to give you more than 100 bucks. Um, but, yeah, one, one of the things we often recommend going in is to say, you know, if it looks like you don't know what you're doing, there's a good chance that people are going to, you know, come and complain and potentially uh, go to a regulator or at least start off with making sure that that outward-facing piece um, is solid enough. Uh, and then you can go back and look at the fundamentals, you know, the data mapping, the understanding, you know, what are you doing, building privacy into new things. None of that stuff happens overnight. Uh, but if you're really kind of where should I absolutely start first, one of the things I usually do going into a meeting with a new uh, new company is to go and look at their privacy notice. And if it says, you know, I haven't been updated in five years or there's obvious pieces missing from it, you say, you know, you're basically raising a big red flag for anyone to come and, you know, have a go at you. And that's not a good place to be. That's a really bad place to be about. It's a very bad place to be. Overall, would you say that the posture of organizations are, are trending positively or are folks still struggling to understand what their responsibility in this is? I think it's a bit of both. I do think that there is a positive trend. There's certainly a lot more resource being put against privacy than there was a few years ago. But I think people are still struggling with just that the the requirements can seem overwhelming. Um, And I think there's been a a real focus on, um, you know, some of the big laws. Uh, But one of the ones that's really had a big impact this year from a fines perspective is... uh, um, is the BIPA, the, the Biometric uh, Privacy Act out of Illinois. Uh, huge, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of fines out of one law around facial recognition and some biometrics pieces in one state. So I think that comes back to really understanding, you know, what do you have? What are the laws that could really be applicable to you? Uh, and not just look at the headline, right, California, CCPA, you know, they, if we spend all of our time on that, we may miss some of these things that are bigger risks. So I think that's a big concern for people because things are changing so fast. Uh, there's literally a book uh, that uh, was written just about California privacy laws. There isn't just one. 
Uh, I think I remember seeing that over 50 new laws have been introduced in New York alone that have some element of privacy um, in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of things that are moving. Uh, and I think there really is, if, if you don't have much in the way of resources, it can be really hard just to keep on top of that piece of it. Uh, and that's really what kind of uh, we set up ethos to, to try and help with is just give a little bit of breathing room so that all of those really important things that maybe aren't as visible, um, you can be working on those and getting those sorted out rather than worrying all the time about, oh, you know, I, I've now got to go and read through this new law and work out what are those tiny little tweaks that are different between the stuff that I'm doing and the stuff that this requires? And, you know, do I need to care or not? I think that's perfectly led into where you think, where do you think privacy as a whole is, is, is going to be heading in the next few years, uh, the way things have gone? I think, well, I, I fear that certainly in the U.S. it's going to get more complicated before it gets less complicated. Um, yeah. As you're well aware, we have uh, 50 different state data breach laws uh, and some, you know, uh, D.C. has one as well. Uh, and I, I do fear that we're heading the same way with privacy laws because, you know, I, I know the, the phrase that the states are the laboratories of democracy, but we have very different ideas of, I think, what privacy should be uh, in, across different states. Um, and I worry that even if we do pass federal legislation, it won't preempt. So it won't actually supersede um, that state legislation. And we're going to end up with kind of this patchwork quilt, which is going to be, it's going to raise the cost of compliance, honestly, without really helping people out very much. Uh, so I, I worry from that complexity perspective. But I do think at the same time, that's going to increase the pressure um, on the uh, um, on Congress to really act and to say, you know, we need to make this easier. Uh, right, GDPR is not perfect in Europe. It really isn't. Uh, but they put a lot of process. Uh, and one of the advantages GDPR has, um, the General Data Protection Regulation, is that it treats all kinds of information pretty much the same. Uh, there are a couple of specific things around particularly sensitive data uh, and children's data where you have a little bit more protection, uh, as you might expect. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, there's a lot of you can understand that these rules will apply. Um, whereas in the US, uh, different kinds of data, you know, in different ways, uh, there's so many different things that we have to think about uh, that I think a lot of that cost of compliance, it's really hurting, you know, uh, American companies' ability to um, to innovate and to manage when you don't even understand what the rules are. So I do think that over the next couple of years, I'm hopeful uh, that there will be increased chaos. Uh, but at some point, some sanity will step in and be like, okay, we, we need to really, if we're going to be competitive, we need to align with one way of doing things. And we can't have, you know, 20 different years of, uh, of legislation all kind of built on top of each other. Um, so yeah, I, I'm hopeful, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, unfortunately. You know, I, I don't mean to sound ignorant. This has come up before around uh, children and privacy. I don't know what they have right now. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a little out, out in left field, but when it comes to children privacy, and specifically, like for example, when parents post pictures of their children online and mm -hmm. without their consent and that kind of stuff, I mean, is that is that actually a thing right now? Is that is that something that people are working on uh, to make some kind of a law around it? There, there are yeah, there are already laws that protect children's privacy. Uh, with parents, particularly with minors, it's hard because there's an assumption that up to a certain age. You know, a minor doesn't get their own say. Uh, yeah. But then that's why a lot of sites will say that you can't have um, 
in the US, you can't have users under 13 because then there's a whole different set of rules and parental consent and that kind of thing to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have seen that with there's a lot of online services now where you can effectively set up children um, under your main account and, and they, they then will get age-appropriate things kind of as they grow. Uh, I've done that for my own kids. Um, but at some point, yeah, they, they then transition into kind of this, this wide world and um, it's how do you you know, inherit the, the 200 Facebook photos that, you, you know, your parents have put in all the way mm-hmm. since you were tiny. Um, I think we're still, um, you know, those of us who didn't grow up as a digital native, uh, we're still coming to terms with kind of, I think, where some of those lines are. Um, and, you know, the politicians are usually a few years behind kind of where the, mm-hmm. uh, the zeitgeist is on some of this stuff. So I think it'll continue to evolve. There, there was an interesting proposal around effectively once you hit 18 you could wipe out anything about you on the internet you know get a kind of a fresh start i i don't know how practical that is some of this stuff sound it makes for good sound bites um but i think you know that the only way that you could really do that would then to be to have some kind of a unique identifier which raises its own problems right with uh you know how are you going to know that it's all pictures of camera do it do we use your social like what else is you know is yeah. going to tie all of those things together so Man, that'd be super interesting. If I could do that, I would go back and completely delete everything that was on my MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the first couple of years of Facebook when I was uh, when I was a teenager and just stupid. <laughs> well, yeah, thank- thankfully, I'm old enough that I missed out on all of that. I mean, even uh, uh, even when I was at university, social media didn't didn't really exist in the way it does now. So it's fascinating to think about, though. I mean, I. I didn't mean to sound like I didn't really, I was clueless around that. I I figured there was parental, you know, uh, guidelines around children and setting up accounts and whatnot. I just, I was curious just, you know, how big of a market that was right now and how, how that is developing and if it's going to be something that's going to be bigger um, as privacy grows, which I would imagine. So yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the challenge is always the network effect. It's how big, unless you have a walled garden experience like Xbox or, you know, Nintendo Switch where they can run their own parental controls within that environment. Uh, I know there's been a few startups that are trying to give a more general, pardon me, uh, uh, parents dashboard almost. Um, but I think with a lot of these, it's just how do you get enough scale that it's really worth it for a parent that's juggling, you know, 50 other things anyway. Um, yeah. You know, for me, um, you know, I, I gave my, my kids' original phones were kind of these, uh, I would say they were construction phones, uh, you know, like 20 bucks off of Amazon. They, they talk and text, and that's pretty much it. Uh, but uh, as they migrated to smartphones, now I, I appreciate that they've got all of, the, uh, um, all of the parental controls kind of in one place that I can, you know, set up the times of day and the apps and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, it's knowing kind of where to look. Um, and I think even then there's probably some things where, um, you know, I, I don't have my arms fully across kind of their changing needs as well. Uh, you know, they, they get a new app they need to use for school and suddenly they can't use it after eight o'clock at night or something, right? I mean, that, that's right. something that's come up where it's yet, now yet another thing that I just need to manage. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's fascinating. I, I Things are going to be so much different once, I mean, my son's only two. So by the time I start getting into all of that, who knows where things will be. It's almost overwhelming. Well, I think the overwhelming thing, at least for myself, is I am just old enough that I could have been one of those people that uh, put a lot of myself out there in early MySpace, et cetera. 
but I was also, I was young enough then, but I was also just old enough that I, I had understood some of the challenges of privacy on the internet, kind of like up close and personal. Um, just because my early, my early, uh, hacker experimentation days and so forth. Um, it's, it's what's happening next. It, you, you mentioned your son, for example, Cameron, there is, there is whatever that unknown MySpace event is that will happen at some point in his, in his life, you know, from a privacy perspective. And I think we're really what, what, what we're trying to get to is how do we articulate the fundamentals of privacy in such a way that whatever comes next, whatever replaces MySpace, your son's prepared for and, and that analogy holds true for the business problems that we're trying to solve for, right? Which yeah. is, yeah, what, what are the fundamental privacy practices that we need to put in place now so that we are prepared for whatever that, that next event that we don't quite know what it is yet? Well, the, the good news with that is that the fundamentals haven't really changed since the 70s. It's still tell people what you're going to do so that the, the, the FIPS, the, the Fair Information uh, Practice Principles, uh, have been around since the 70s and things like transparency you know making sure that you're uh, you're only using the data for things that you should that, that you've told people what you're going to do you know data minimization uh, and a lot of those things are reflected in gdpr article 5 as well where it comes down to there are four or five principles around you know only collect the data you need use it for the things you've told people about get rid of it once you don't need it anymore um, the challenge is that while those principles haven't changed, the way you apply them really has, right? That the complexity of that piece uh, has really changed. And I think that's where, you know, I I, I say to people and I, uh, you know, it's a it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but a little bit not. Is the privacy is not that complicated, you know? You, you you really fundamentally these principles are pretty universal, but the way that they get applied, particularly to things like AI, where there's a lot of work right now on. You know, how do we, when we don't even understand how an algorithm can get to a conclusion, how do we then, um, you know, be transparent about how's the algorithm not being um, discriminatory, right, or biased against a, a certain group of people, as we saw with, you know, a lot of the early facial recognition technology, where now we understand what the problem was, that the training set was not representative of the population at large, but even if you then go and buy, purchase um, a piece of software that was trained, let's say, you know, on an American representative population, you try and implement it in Japan, you know, how's that going to work, right? So I, I think there are some of these things where if you think about it and, you, you, you know, you're, you're very thoughtful about those different steps, you can head a lot of these challenges off. Uh, but I think often we're under pressure, you know, it's the end of the quarter, whatever else is going on. Uh, and those pressures mean that sometimes – you know, uh, steps are skipped, uh, or we don't really follow what the uh, you know what the right way of doing things is, uh, and I think that's a constant challenge, not just for privacy, really for any kind of compliance type function where you know it, it's important, uh, but is it always something that we feel is urgent to be done, kind of when we're trying to get something out the door? Um, and I think in my experience, successful organisations are those that have said it, it's always going to be important that you do this, uh, and you just need to plan. So that this is part of the overall life cycle. It's good. I think this uh, this comes naturally as a question for you, but this is a, a fix your fix your privacy for our listeners, whether it be personal or for their company. Is there one thing that you would recommend, or something that you'd like to um, tell our listeners uh, about fixing their privacy, or just giving advice around making it better? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think for individuals, it's really, it's the same principles, right? So only give up data that you really need to. Um, think about where you're sharing data, where, where, you, where you're not, um, and be proactive, I think, in, um, in going after those rights where, you know, if, you've, if you think you're not going to buy from a site again, ask them to delete your data or, you know, or, or go in and kind of delete it yourself. Um, I think from an individual or a company perspective, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, where a lot, a lot of people get caught out in their own personal privacy is they never delete anything. Uh, and it's the same for organizations, right? You can find embarrassing things on someone's laptop, maybe Gabe's MySpace page, you know, from uh, from years and years ago. But, you know, did you ever go in there, Gabe, and delete it? Or is it just sitting out there if, uh, you know, it's still playing the music when I load it up? <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yeah, that that is so true. And I, again, I, I'm raising my hand and saying guilty because I'm guilty of not deleting data that I should probably delete just to get rid of it. It's it's funny how that because it piles up and you just don't even you just forget about it. So it's I can see how easy that it, that is for a company. Well, and it's uh, a lot of organizations, because there are so many laws around retention, uh, a lot of organizations will have a records retention policy and a framework. Um, but I tend to look at retention as an exception to deletion. If you say deletion is the default, uh, and then if we've got a legal reason to retain it or a business reason to retain it, sure, you can keep it you know, for that period and then delete it. Right. But if you keep deletion as the default and you're saying to people you've got to delete it unless you can prove you still have a need for it uh, whether it's a, a legal reason like seven years for tax records or whatever or a business reason like we but even with a business reason do you need to keep it in a form where i can go back and say you know this is cameron and this is gabe or can i go and say well we, we ran a, a a podcast with three people right what level of granularity do you need and i think the uh, that's also a hard thing for people to get their heads around that you can still get a lot of the value out of most data sets without really identifying who those people are, right? Unless you're going to target them specifically. Um, and there are obvious exceptions to this that you can probably think of. But in a lot of cases, you know, that aggregate data, kind of the trending, uh, you can still get a lot of kind of information out of a data set that really has a tiny fraction of that risk that if you could go back and, and identify those individuals, right? If you look at the data breach laws, they pretty much all say you've got to have a combination of data elements that include someone's name and, and these other things that you can tie it back to a person. If you strip all of that stuff out of a data set, by definition, you can't have a data breach like a reportable data breach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's really that education piece as well with saying to people, you know, you can get 80% of the value with 50, 40% of the data, um, especially when, you know, data ages as well. Um, what is it, 10%? And, and again, I, I'm citing these surveys and I can't remember the actual thing for, but I think it's like 9 or 10% of, uh, of uh, adults in the US move every single year. So if you had a data set that was 100% correct with everyone's address in the US last year, it's already 10% wrong. Um, so those are the kinds of things where data does age and get worse over time. Um, mm-hmm. And it's understanding those kinds of things as well as to people you know, it's a little bit different from uh, deleting pictures of your kid's first birthday because that's always, you know, point in time. But a lot of this stuff organizations collect and they never use anyway. So true. I got two more serious questions for you. What's one thing you wish you knew before you got into the privacy industry? 
I think there was a lot of, uh, I had faith that it would turn into an industry. Uh, at the time, I really got into it. Um, like I said, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, you're, you're good at security. You should just keep doing that because privacy is, you know, it's it's never going to go anywhere. Like nobody cares enough. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I did kind of hold the line on that pretty well. But I think if I could go back and say, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. You're just a few years early. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it would have made it a lot easier when I was kind of facing some of that you know, did I make a really big mistake by focusing on something that apparently no one wants to buy? <laughs> it's funny too, because for the most part, there's a lot of things and everybody has their their own individual identifier of what is sensitive to them. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is most people, most people personally don't really care unless they're into industry and they're knowledgeable enough to be aware of certain things, but for the most part, they they don't care until something happens to them, which is also true to some companies and industries. They're usually more reactive than proactive. I don't know why that is, but maybe it's just a human instinct over the years that privacy was just never something that people realized about data and how much of it is out there and how it continues to pile up just makes it, I mean, it, today, that's why privacy is so important now, I think, and it's getting, it's going to be more and more important. It's, it's, it's super interesting to think about. Yeah. And I think it's, it's people's expectation that they can be effectively private in public that really is changing as well. You, you see how many people have been arrested since um, January the 6th, where people were posting things on YouTube and they were posting and they didn't realize that people would actually take the time and effort to go back and put all those things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, well, just yeah. to your well, point, the same thing with uh, famous people. They're, people are going back years and years, and and getting dirt on people just to get dirt on people to make to make issues from yeah. years and years ago that have nothing to do with. If you have a big name and you had something that you did that was negative, um, someone's going to pull it up and put it well, against yeah. you. It's a it's a case study I've used for years. So I, I lecture occasionally at the University of Washington, and uh, the the case study I've used for years is, and this is going back to when this was infeasible. Uh, I said, imagine the whole of YouTube, and you could actually run facial recognition across the whole of YouTube, like every single thing. You were never tagged in a picture. You were just doing something stupid in the background. And I said, one day that'll be a presidential candidate, and they're they're going to be knocked out of the race because of something they did in public that they thought would never actually come back to bite them. Um, so I, I would, and now we're getting to the point that that's becoming more and more feasible, that the computing power is there to do those kinds of things. Um, but at the time, I was like, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I was lucky that all of the photos of me when I was a teenager are, you know, printed out on on, uh, on paper. So, uh, you know, nothing really digital. Uh, but a lot of these things, even if you think you're in the background of a picture, the technology is there or thereabouts to, to go and find it from audio, video, whatever else. Um, and at that point, you know, it's going to change our relationship, I think, with what really is a public space. Yeah. And listeners, Aaron was not trying to age himself there. <laughs> He's got digital pictures. Don't worry. <laughs> I, remember, I remember my first digital camera was 0.3 of a megapixel. I thought that was awesome. Yes. <laughs> But you know what, even (laughs) going through those times that I I find it fascinating uh, talking to my grandparents, you know, they're in their eighties, not saying that you're anywhere near your eighties, but I think it's fascinating. And you've gotten to 
go through more than I've gotten to go through. And I, I actually went through, I feel like the, I went through the nineties, the early th- 2000s and now in the 2020s and the, the amount of changes, because I remember beepers and I'm only 33. So I remember beepers before cell phones happened. But I mean, even before that, you got to witness so many different technology changes. I mean, I remember when my grandfather got the first uh, like car phone where it's the Velcro, you put it in the middle of this uh, the dashboard or whatever, and it's just a giant Velcro phone that's yep. in a leather case. Um, it's just fascinating to where we are. And, and I mean, I know this is kind of off topic, but uh, I don't know. I just think it's really neat. Well, I think that comes back to kind of the, the fascination with this space is that there's so much change and all of these things, all of these devices you can think of, whether it's, you know, the, the virtual reality, self-driving cars, um, whatever these things are, um, they all involve personal data at some level. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that that for me is kind of the opportunity to get involved in a lot of these things that you're like, cool, I didn't even know that we could do that yet. But uh but yeah, it's uh, that's where I think it's that intersection of these things is, is so fascinating. I think what it also highlights too, though, is that uh, maybe some of these things we should have seen coming. The fact that that cell phone existed in your grandfather's car meant that someone at Ma Bell was able to uh, to know who he was communicating with and where his physical location was and things of that nature. Um, how that information has been used between now and between then and now, though. Is anyone's guess, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. It, it takes a while sometimes for these things to catch up. But Gabe, you don't, the, the normal person doesn't think about that. They don't, they don't think about, oh man, they can track me. I mean, maybe now, but not then. And not even, not even a couple, like a year ago. But now, now people that aren't even in this industry are more aware, which makes it even more interesting. Good. Yeah, not not always aware in a sensible way, though. I mean, I, I live out um, in a fairly rural area, and we have pretty bad cell service. Um, and we just finally got a cell phone tower installed because a group of anti-5G protesters, have been, they fought this all the way to the state Supreme Court to get this thing. And I heard that a couple of them even moved once it was finally approved because they didn't want to be near it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, people are complaining about these things, and at the same time, they're carrying the phones with them. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know a little transmitter. You know, six inches from your brain is. Uh, I, I have a physics degree, so I, I know how this stuff works. Uh, but yeah, I'm just throwing it out there, guys. <laughs> physics degree, no big deal. Well, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I have some of my old uh, question books. I, I don't even understand the questions anymore, let alone what the answers would be. But uh. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're not if you're not doing it um, exactly. regularly, you can lose yep. it. Yeah, yeah. I guess that that uh, that goes for algebra. Uh, anyways uh last question before we get into the last segment aaron um is there anything that you'd like to bring up that we didn't uh bring up at all about the company or anything that you'd like to say to our our listeners yeah i mean i i think that you know what i'm trying to do is a little bit of it's solving a little bit of a different problem i think from a lot of the other uh companies and, and technology companies that are out there and it's really you know, it's the how do you kind of um, uh, stop the noise um, so that you can really focus on what needs to be done. Um, and I think that's where, you know, I, I think we have a, a pretty, if not unique is an overused word, but certainly a, a different perspective, I think, from a lot of companies where they feel that they've got to just do stuff to be to be doing stuff 
because uh, they're worried they're behind. Um, my approach is a little bit more, well, if we can if we can make the rest of it easier, then you don't have to do as much stuff and it kind of balances a little bit better. So yeah, I, I'm, you know, the, the, the company's been running three, three and a bit years now. And, you know, we're up to like 35 people. Uh, and it, it's been a really enjoyable run. Uh, but I think there's a lot more that we can do, you know, as we hopefully continue to grow and, and, and expand in this space where, you know, getting into just helping people get out of those spreadsheets. Um, because, yeah, it, it's um, it's way too common, even with, you know, Fortune 100 companies, that a lot of this stuff is kind of, it's still in a spreadsheet somewhere because that's they're just such an easy tool for people. So, yeah, hope, hopefully we can, uh, like I said, I don't think of myself in any way as kind of, you know, saving the world. But uh, if we can make an incremental improvement here or there, you know, that that's, I'll, I'll be pretty happy with that. Awesome. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for what you do. I think it's time for Deep Dark Secrets. It's, uh, I mean, it's privacy, please. We might as well learn a little bit more about our guest and get underneath the privacy part. So first one. Since you just touched on it, you're not saving the world, but if you could, what what superpower would you choose and why? Uh, I think one of the things, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Uh, and I think it's um, the fact that we don't seem to be able to remember, right? If you, if you looked back at the, uh, uh, the pandemic at the start of the 1900s, so the beginning of the 20th century, and kind of some of exactly the same things that we're going through. Uh, I do think that having, you know, someone with the, to say, yep, no, I was, I was there and kind of this is what we did and kind of so, I think that I'd love to see kind of as things continue to evolve and into the future. So, you know, maybe not immortality, immortality, but I think looking ahead and saying, you know, just having, having people that you could look on and say, you know, what, hap- what did you do the last time this happened? Uh, and I think maybe you know, we're not very good at really learning from our mistakes kind of as a civilization. Sometimes we gradually get there. What that, the, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, you know, the, the, the path, the, the path to get into the right place. It, it's very, very straight. Um, uh, but we do get there. Um, so I, I think with that, it's, I, I just love to kind of see, you know, what things are going on in, in 20 years or 50 years or 200 years, you know, maybe, maybe not living that whole time, but certainly just getting those glimpses of kind of where things are going. Cause yeah, that, that's fascinating to me, even the amount of change that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm I, uh, I very excited about kind of, you know, things that we will continue to do in the future. Interesting. So you could be either like a vampire or uh, an Egyptian or something. Or like I, I don't mummy, know that like I would give up my sunlight, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you could, but if, would you give up your sunlight? If you could live another two hundred years or so, uh, that's that's a tough one. <laughs> I don't know. After watching, I, I saw this vampire movie, which was hysterical. Um, uh, what we do in the shadows. Oh yeah, yep. You've seen that? Yep. I'm I'm actually I'd be okay with it if it was like that. <laughs> did, did you see the uh, the show as well? The movie was pretty good, but I thought the show was better. The show's better. Okay. I'll have to check it out. I, I actually am really a big fan of the, in the movie, I forget his name, but he was in, um, he was the rock guy in uh, the Thor movie, uh, Rag on Rock. He was, he was like a funny character. I think he's also a producer or, or a director. Oh, okay. but he has like that funny accent, but he, I think he was the main, one of the main vampires in the, in that movie. But um, he also played in a movie where he played uh, an imaginary Hitler. 
um, it, it's like a comedy where a little young boy, I forget the name of it, but it's actually Jojo really good. Rabbit. Yes. Jojo rabbit. Did you see that one, Aaron? I haven't seen that. Try to try to check that one out. That one was actually really good. <laughs> he plays, he plays and imagine it where like the, the young boy, I forget. I don't know. I'm, I'm botching good way it. to explain Jojo rabbit. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. watch the trailer. I promise. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just botched it. Anyways. <laughs> What's your what's your favorite drink, Aaron? Uh, I've uh, I like the experience that goes around. So if it's uh, the last three places that I've lived, probably I would say coincidentally, but uh, uh, I think more for the weather than anything else. I've always lived near a wine growing region. Uh, so when I was in Australia, I lived fairly closely Yarra Valley, and then uh, uh, Napa Sonoma when I was in the Bay Area, and now up in Washington as well. Uh, so I, I like, but I like the experience of kind of going wine tasting and, you know, the, the, uh, is this what I like? Is this what I don't like? Uh, and it's the same with, you know, when, when I lived in the UK, I, I didn't think much of you know, the, the American imports over there weren't really much when you're drinking beer. Uh, but certainly the Pacific Northwest has a great craft brewing scene. So it's the same kind of thing. I mean, if, you, if we're out somewhere and we're like, oh, you know, let's go and stop at this place and see what they do differently. So for me, it's kind of, you know, it's more of the experience piece. But, you know, if I, I, I probably take a glass of wine, I'd probably take a glass of wine over a glass of beer. But, uh, you know, it, it really depends on kind of the, the, the whole thing going on around it. That's fair. Um, if, you, if you could star in a movie, well, let's say if your life was a movie, um, <laughs> who, who, what, what famous actor would play you? And what uh, type of movie would it be? I I would have probably, I, I don't know if it'd be a comedy or a tragedy, but uh, you, you'd probably have to ask my wife which actor should play me. I'll, I'll plead the fifth in that one. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> well, well what, which one would you wish could play you? Like, who's your favorite actor? I, I don't know, a young Harrison Ford, kind of Rangers of the Lost Ark. <laughs> All right, not a bad choice. Really? Yeah, no, cannot go wrong with a young Harrison Ford. No. <laughs> uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, I have my my dad was in the Air Force, uh, and I have a pretty much an obsession with punctuality, which I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he directly directly gave to me. Uh, so yes, it's uh, I, I had to uh, had to work out how to kind of manage that. Where uh, you know I, I'm not always in control of the schedule. I don't always unless I'm catching a plane. I don't always need to be at a party right at the, at the time that they said, but uh, yeah, it's t- taken years of retraining to kind of get me to uh, to be okay with, or at least mostly okay with that. <laughs> Fair. Um, if you were on death row, what would your last meal be? This is important. Food is important. I don't know. I would say it depends how I feel. There's, I don't have like one kind of food that's always my go-to. It's kind of very, it's how I feel at the time. So right. that's probably a pretty, you know, I, I would, I would make them go and work for some, some strange ingredient that you could only get in a, you know, some far off location. So try and find something that would take a while to track down. <laughs> so, so what, what would your choice be if, what's something that you eat most often that you just always, always seems good to you? I don't know. It's uh, I used to love. There was a, a place next to our office um, back back in the before times, uh, before COVID. That's now a hole in the ground where they're they're building a new skyscraper. But uh, they used to do really good pad thai. So that was kind of my go to during the week. Was uh, you know if I if I had some time, I'd go and grab some pad thai from next door. But uh, unfortunately, I don't know where they've relocated to now. All right. 
Well, Aaron, uh, I, I just wanted to, again, thank you for what you do for, um, for coming on the show, for taking the time to talk with us and, and chat with us. It was really fun. It was a pleasure getting to know you and uh, really, really excited to see the journey for your company and for your career. Um, so again, thank you so much for, for being on. No, thanks for the invite. I really enjoyed it. Aaron, thank you much. This was an absolute pleasure, as mentioned before. Before we sign off, can you tell our guests, where can we find you? Where can we get more information? Where can we talk to you? Sure. So the uh, um, thanks for asking that. So the, the website for the company is cultureofprivacy.com because I, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but we see it as being uh, not just compliance, but really trying to build this culture around doing things the right way uh, rather than just checking a box. So cultureofprivacy.com. Um, and then if you want to get hold of me, um, I'm pretty sure I'm just, well, I'm LinkedIn slash Aaron Weller, I think. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm got privacy. Um, so you can get hold of me there as well. But yeah, I should be fairly easy to find on uh, on LinkedIn too. Awesome. Very good. I won't, I won't tell you my MySpace page. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll find it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, Aaron. We appreciate it, man. Thanks again. Thanks. Cheers. wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on i know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey we are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week if you like the show tell a friend have them tell their friends and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together let's protect what matters most and by the way dj can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. Yeah.